Welcome again to Praxis. It's a joy to be able to fellowship together. My name is Alan. For those of you who I haven't had the privilege to meet, I hope to do so soon. I am one of the pastors here at Lighthouse, and I oversee our young adult singles ministry here called Praxis. Um, if, you went, if you've been with us for uh, some time, we've been studying the book of Romans, and we've been on a bit of a break because circumstantially uh, I got sick, and so I thought Alessandro could fill in and preach on the passage in Romans, but then he got sick, so then God didn't want us to preach on Romans until today, and we're going to be taking a weird chunk because we really want to finish Romans 11 uh, right before beginning our new summer uh, inductive Bible study series in a couple weeks. So we're going to plow through and cover a lot of ground. Um, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them into the book of Romans. We're going to be in chapter 11, and we'll be closing out this chapter, uh, studying tonight verses 11 to 36. And you can tell it is quite a lofty desire. So let us pray for the Lord's help and blessing upon our time. Let's pray. God, what a joy uh, to know that when we decrease, then we can see you rightly. Then we recognize our fallenness, our weakness, our desperate state. And at the same time, it causes us to look outside of ourselves, to be humble beggars and plead with you to nourish our souls, to feed us with your word, that we might be built up, strengthened. Father, I know that this portion of scripture can be quite naughty, um, filled with esoteric uh, ideas and concepts, at least seemingly so. But we pray that you illumine our minds to understand uh, just the detailed uh, plans that you have for salvation and redemption, and make us all the more grateful, humble, desiring to worship and exalt Christ. Lord, guide our time, uh, convict us, Lord, and uh, may we rejoice and render all praise to you. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, according to Wikipedia, Pride and Prejudice has consistently appeared near the top of lists of most loved books among literary scholars and the reading public. It has become one of the most popular novels in English literature with over 20 million copies sold and has inspired many derivatives in modern literature. I mean, many of us have read and written papers on Pride and Prejudice in our English classes. We're at least familiar with the work, the novel. And without shame, I will publicly confess before everyone here that my favorite book is not Pride and Prejudice, but it is still beloved and treasured by many women and a few dudes. Um, but the major theme in Pride and Prejudice is not very difficult to discern, right? It's in the title. We are to learn that snap judgments do us no good. That pride will distort your perception of people and prejudice you from recognizing the good in others. And this lesson is exemplified through the two main characters, Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth. Mr. Darcy is hasty to write off people he deems plain, boring, unsophisticated, blinding him initially 
to Elizabeth's admirable qualities. Elizabeth, on the other hand, is put off by Mr. Darcy's snobbery, and yet she is also guilty of committing the same mistake. Her pride prejudices her against Mr. Darcy and his noble status in society, and she thinks certainly he must be a wretched, miserable, nasty person, blinding her to his redeeming traits. But once they both recognize their pride and rid themselves of their prejudices, then they are able to appreciate each other. And when they finally do, guess what? Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth, they fall in love and live happily ever after. You know, people have been asking me in practice when I'm going to do a dating series. Well, there it is. Don't be dumb and prideful. Be humble and get married if you want to and if the Lord wills. Now, I'm kind of joking, but there is a kernel of truth there because most of the problems we encounter in life stem from pride in some shape or form. In fact, we run into the biggest problems when we're prideful over the very things we should be the most humble about. And tonight, Paul admonishes us as Christians, from adopting such an attitude, especially in light of all that he has unfolded and discussed with salvation, and specifically the doctrine of election. You know, a prideful Christian is an oxymoron. But for, because for a faith built on grace, Christians of all people should be marked by grace as undeserving sinners spared of eternal condemnation, granted instead eternal life, this grand reversal, we should be the humblest people to ever walk on the face of the planet. But we know this isn't always the case. I know it for myself. We're prone to forget the glories of the cross, the grace of God, and forgetfulness. Well, forgetfulness is fertile soil. For pride. You see, familiarity with God's plan of salvation is meant, intended to foster humility in our hearts. And so Paul's goal, his aim for tonight is very simple. He unpacks the intricacies of God's merciful salvation to prune away pride and prejudice and to cultivate humility and grace. That's the key idea. I didn't I forgot to insert it in your bulletins if you have one, but in true lighthouse fashion, that's the key idea. We want to see the intricacies, the complexities of God's merciful salvation to discourage us from pride and to foster humility. And for this reason, Paul presents to us three phases uh, they don't neatly divide, but there's some overlapage. But mainly, he's going to show us the mercy of God's plan, the mystery of God's plan, and the magnificence of God's plan. Now, last week, Alessandro gave us a crash course in hermeneutics. Tonight, we will have another crash course, a crash course on chapter 11, emphasis on the crash. Um, but originally, each of these three points were going to be their own sermon. But due to circumstances, God said no, and that I would preach all of them, condense it into one message, and that's okay. We're going to cover a lot of ground. We'll take a bird's eye view to glean the bigger idea from the bigger picture. And so, a quick recap to kind of reorient where we are since we've been away from the book for a while. 
In Romans 9 to 11, the apostle deals again with the doctrine of election, namely how God selects and ransoms a people for himself. The apostle teaches the dynamics between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, that God exercises complete and absolute authority. It is what it means to be God. And though he ordains everything in human history, we are still culpable for our actions. We are moral agents. We do what we want. Only thing is, our default setting is selfward. We have a sinful bent. And this is true whether we've grown up in a religious environment like the Jews in the Old Testament, or we've been ignorant, uninterested in the divine like the Gentiles non-Jews. In both situations, regardless, we are guilty before a holy God. But the good news is we can be made righteous by faith in Christ. And at this point in Romans, we might shrug, all right, that's good. Let's just close up shop. If what we do with Jesus is the linchpin to everything, why is Paul spilling so much ink in chapter 11 to discuss the minutia, the finer details, to wax eloquent on Israel, Gentiles, and how they fit together within God's plan of salvation. Well, it's kind of like watching a really good movie. First time through, you just enjoy. You sit back and you take in the visual effects and you're surprised, pleasantly so, by the plot twists. But it's only on the second and third viewing you begin to pick up on the subtleties. You notice the creative framing of a crucial scene or the foreshadowing that is found within a character's words. There are layers of complexities and connections. And with every watch, you appreciate more and more the brilliance of the movie director. Paul wants us to appreciate the brilliance of God. The brilliance of God in how he has orchestrated his plan of redemption. And so, yes, sure, in one sense, the gospel is very simple. We are to repent of our sins, place our faith in Christ. But we would be missing out if we thought salvation was only that. The more we study the gospel, the more we ought to be moved, the more we're amazed the more we appreciate the beauty, wisdom, love, and glory of God. And that's what Paul wants to accomplish. So first, Paul focuses on the mercy of God's plan. We'll pick up in verse 11 when he writes, So I ask, did they, referring to Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, to the nations, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? You know, there's a critical moment when you're walking and you slip. As your body is thrown off course, as you are in the process of stumbling, there is that split-second realization. You're either going to recover and regain your balance, or you're going to eat it, maybe even plummet to your death. I don't know. Paul here describes Israel's current spiritual condition as one of stumbling. They're far from God, 
But listen, their faltering will not end, will not result in falling. The Jews will regain their spiritual composure, if you will. Their backsliding instead serves a greater, grander purpose. How? Well, Paul discloses that in God's plan, this is precisely, exactly how he extends mercy to the Gentiles. A silly illustration, but if I buy donuts and offer to my kids and they miraculously say no, um, first I'd be like, what's wrong with you? You fell on your head or something. But guess what opportunity that opens up? I can offer donuts to you. Or I could eat the donuts myself, but that's not the illustration here. Uh, The Jews reject God and his salvation. And as terrible, as atrocious as that is, The silver lining is God uses their rebellion as an occasion then to bless the nations. Through the trespass of the Israelites, salvation is offered to Gentiles, to non-Jews, to people like you and me. It's why thousands of years later, a group of Asians, Americans, and other ethnicities gather on a Thursday night as the redeemed people of God to study his word to marvel at what he's doing. Now, maybe if you're a little paranoid and insecure, you might ask, well, once the Jews come to their senses and they turn back to God, what's going to happen with us? Are we going to be shown the door and then deserted? Well, Paul draws the opposite conclusion. He continues in verse 13 by saying this. says, now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Do you follow the apostle's point? He's saying, if we've been blessed through the blunder of the Jews, Paul declares, he announces then, that there can only be better things coming when the Jews are restored, when they do what's right, when they obey. This is the classic lesser to the greater argument. Through the failure of the Jews, God's plan to save the nations is initiated. And when the Jews return to God, when they are accepted, God's plan of salvation will be near completion, which is what Paul is getting at by mentioning life from dead in verse 15. He's being very literal here, talking about physical resurrection. How does this all connect? Well, you see, we experience some benefits, some aspects of our salvation today. You know, we get to enjoy a relationship with God, freedom from the power of sin, growth in obedience. But none of us believe we're fully, we fully arrive. We live in a fallen world. We're saints, yet sinners. We know we still cave into temptation. We disobey the Lord. Our bodies age. People die. But there is coming a day when sin will be completely vanquished, when all things will be made new, including our bodies. And when the Jews repent and believe, it is a signal that we are near the finish line. We are on the precipice of experiencing and enjoying the fullness of our salvation and all that it entails. 
You might even say, as we've studied, creation groans for our redemption, right? If you recall that in Romans 8, because it means their own redemption. We groan for the redemption of Israel because it means the fullness of ours. Jews and Gentiles. It's a package deal. So the implication is there is no room for competition, for condescension. Faith sealed together, we are to stay humble, especially, especially if we have been grafted in. Paul begins to illustrate, beginning in verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, speaking to the Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. There's a lot going on here. But to summarize, the natural branches represent ethnic Israel the OG people of God, the Jews. The wild shoots are you and me, Gentiles, those outside of the covenant, those originally on the outside, but now graciously attached, grafted in. And look, everyone knows the rule. If you were brought in, don't act as if you own the place, right? Just think of those that are adopted into a loving family. There would be something off if an adopted child was rude, glowering at other kids, or critical or nasty in tone. It would demonstrate that they have forgotten. They have forgotten who they were, and by the mercy of another, who they now are. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're familiar with this kind of struggle. Arrogance seems to always be right around the corner of appreciation. You know, about a month ago, a few of us went to a Dodger and Giants game to celebrate our own beloved Corey's birthday. It was an early birthday celebration. And it was a great game because there was a lot of hits and a lot of scoring, a lot of excitement. Um, well, for the Dodgers at least. And as a Dodgers fan, I was content. I was pleased. I remember when Mookie Bits hit a home run, me and my kids were, we were just clapping, cheering, just celebrating the goodness of God in our lives. And we were just genuinely happy. But it didn't take long, maybe just a second after, before we were laughing and pointing our fingers at Corey, the evil Giants fan, saying, in your face, birthday boy. Now, did he deserve that? I don't know. But certainly we didn't deserve, we had no right to gloat. Shoot, all we were doing was sitting in the stands. You see, there is a fine line between rejoicing and bragging, right? Yes, we should rejoice at our salvation. We should celebrate having received the mercy of God. But Paul is warning us from presuming upon grace. Don't forget who you are in this scene. At the end of the day, you're a branch, regardless if you are original or wild. You're just a twig. 
You and I are not the superstars we think. We're privileged to just sit in the stands and marvel at God's plan of salvation. And then to be chosen by him, to be called his own, that should impact and inform how we view and interact with other people. We should be floored to not only observe, but receive God's mercy. And floored we should remain when we interact with any Jew, unbeliever, or person for that matter. So let me ask, Praxis, what is the first thought that crosses your mind when you talk to others? Do you have the habit of constantly sizing people up? Who you're better than? Who's beneath you? Are you caught up in the comparison game, looking at looks, smarts, measuring athletic abilities, job titles, overall achievements and success? Or, or is the gospel truly central? So central that it shapes how you see others. Is the dominant reality that you have no merit to the mercy of God other than being brought in? And that clothes you in humility and puts everything, everyone in proper perspective, including yourself. After all, the common denominator between Jew and Gentile is faith. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. Verse 23, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Uh, Paul elaborates on the illustration, um, but I want us to see the bigger idea. He's leveling the ground, providing a corrective in verses 21 and 22. That God is not to be trifled with. He will not waver from his word, judging the unrighteous, stern with those who spurn his mercy, like he's done with the Jews. On the other hand, he is precisely that, merciful. Merciful to those who appreciate and receive his mercy humbly. The decisive factor, it's right there in verses 23 and 24. Not whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're a wild branch or a natural one. What matters most is if you are attached to the tree, if you're rooted by faith, whether you continue in unbelief or you believe. Belief is what connects and grafts you into the root. So believe. The opportunity is now seek the Lord while he may be found. Now, in this current time period, God lavishes abundantly his mercy on the nations. But this is not merely plan B or an alternative to Israel's stubborn ways. God has ordained all of this. And Paul transitions now to discuss the mystery of God's plan in verse 25, the mystery of God's plan. 
namely this mystery of when will Israel be restored? The short answer is in the future. There's a sequence of events that must occur. And the tough part for us is seeing this progression, this order, because we're in the middle of it. Look at verse 25. Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. I think we can all agree every generation, every time period is different. You know, we have boomers, millennials, and Gen Z. I'll let you debate where you belong, where I belong. We're all in the same category, okay? But it would be myopic and foolish if we think things will always be the way that they are now. And my bet is most of us, we hardly give any consideration to Israel. Seems like this distant idea. You know, at least from world news, the social feed that we absorb, or our own daily conversation, well, Israel and the salvation of the Jews, well, it's just not on our radar. And maybe that's part of the reason why reading the Old Testament is such a struggle, because it feels so foreign to us. It seems like worlds apart. We read about the nation of Israel being God's beloved people, and it's difficult for us to see the relevance, to see any trace of that today. To us, the church is front and center. But Paul doesn't want us to be short-sighted. The Jews have not been forgotten. Israel's hardening is partial. It is only temporary. As Paul says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, is this referring to a specific number of Gentiles that are to be saved, a designated date when this will happen and the tides will turn? Probably, but that is not for us to ascertain or discover. The secret things belong to the Lord. But one day when all the elected Gentiles have come to faith, Paul tells us there will be a drastic shift says in verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now let's stop there before we get to uh, the rest of his argument. In this way, all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? Now, all Israel will be saved. Uh, this doesn't mean every Jew in history past, those who have deceased will somehow be saved. That would contradict the clear teaching of the rest of scripture. Nor do I personally believe Paul means the immediate and automatic conversion of every single Jewish person at this time. I think Paul is speaking about the nation as a whole, not individuals without exception. Think of it as a way to characterize ethnic Israel. For example, if I say all of Lighthouse will be at the all-church retreat this summer, I don't mean every single individual who attends Lighthouse on Sunday will be at uh, Pine Summit, Pine Forest, Forest Home, one of those. Uh, look it up later. I don't mean that every single individual will be at that retreat site, but the church, the very entity will. The, and therefore, the vast majority of Lighthouse will be at retreat. Similarly, the emphasis here isn't on how every single Jew will be saved. After all, we know that righteous shall live by faith, not ethnicity. 
But the mystery is that there is a future where an unprecedented number of Jews will turn to the Lord, that collectively, as the corporate and ethnic whole, all of Israel will be saved. They will look upon the one whom they have pierced, as the prophet Zechariah says, and mourn for him. Their hearts will be rent, rendered and they will plead for mercy. And we aren't just cherry-picking some obscure verse in the past. Paul shows that this has always been the case by quoting from another prophet. In the rest of verse 26 to 27, he cites Isaiah 59. So it says, In this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written in Isaiah, The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So who will fulfill God's plan of salvation? This deliverer, the Messiah, God's anointed one who hails from Zion, which is just a poetic name from Jerusalem. What's the point? The savior of the Jews, of the world, will emerge from within the nation of Israel. So it shouldn't stun us that the Jews will experience at some point national revival, sweeping repentance and faith when they finally embrace their hometown hero and fulfill their role as the vehicle for God's blessing to the world. And Paul continues explaining this mystery in verse 28. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Paul mentions Israel holds dual status. They are both, weirdly so, enemies and elect. Yes, presently they are enemies of the gospel. They have rebelled so that the offer of salvation can be given to us. They are enemies so that we can be friends with God through Christ. Though partially hardened, though currently stumbling, Israel will not be cut off forever. Why? Because they are still elect. They've been chosen by God, beloved of him. And the mystery is that this will find resolution in the future. Now all this, why should we take an interest in Israel? Why should we bother with a nation that, as far as I can tell, none of us here belong to? Well, it's actually very important because God's faithfulness to them is indicative of his faithfulness to us. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That means what God has promised to Israel cannot be broken. Because if they can, then all his promises can be shattered. You see, when a younger brother sees his parents lie and break promises made to his older brother, you know, if they've given him a birthday gift only to take it back the day after, it's not only the big brother that's left disappointed and concerned. The younger sibling worries for his own sake, questioning all that his parents have vowed and given to him. This is basic logic, right? If mom and dad don't keep their word with big brother, what confidence can this little boy have that they won't renege their promises to him? There's no ground for confidence. 
But the opposite can be true. A confidence is fueled, created, bolstered when he sees his parents prove true to their word, both to him and his older sibling. Each time that they deliver on what they say they will do, he can be more and more sure. And praise God, brothers and sisters, we have a father who does not lie. He will not break his promises to Israel or to us. He will not revoke his gifts. He is true to his word. And the consistency of his actions highlight the integrity of his character, that he is trustworthy. As one pastor notes, God's faithfulness to Israel is God's faithfulness to us. So it might seem like a weird application, but what a motivation to read the Bible, including the Old Testament, because we're connected. Their story is our story. We are inextricably tied, which is what Paul features in verses 30 to 32. It says, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of what? Because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. As God is faithful to the Jews to encourage us in his faithfulness to us, So the tables are turned and the lesson is now taught to the Jews. Just as God is merciful upon us, it demonstrates, it proves that he will again have mercy on Israel. And while there may be an element of mystery as God's plan of salvation unfolds, a sequence of events, the difference in timing, Jew or Gentile, our disobedience across the board is exposed so that God might have mercy on all. All right, we've peered at the mercy of God's plan, the mystery of God's plan. And finally, our last consideration, our last point, the magnificence of God's plan. The magnificence of God's plan. And really, a magnificent plan is only telling a reflection of a magnificent God. But I had to title my last point like this to keep the symmetry and not provoke my OCD. Uh, But beginning verse 33... Paul booms and he breaks out in song. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Now, Sally, we don't have the time to mine out every golden nugget contained in these verses. I would commend that exercise to you on your own time. Instead, as we close, I simply want to encourage us to imitate Paul's posture. This is the apex of theology. When doctrine breaks forth in doxology, in singing, in song, when when truth becomes so visceral, you must respond. You see, in the first 11 chapters of Romans, we've tackled some magisterial truths. 
But the dissecting of God's salvation is not some sterile academic experiment or blind information, bland information to digest. Just look at the master theologian, the Bible student, the Bible expert, Paul. He can't contain himself, erupting with praise. And really, this last point is not Paul sitting us down in the classroom, instructing us, as much as it is him modeling for us, unintentionally so, I would say, of his personal application. The overflow of a heart brimming with gratitude and humility. Look at the apostle stretching for language. The exclamatory O and the exclamation marks at the end of verse 33 are his desperate attempts to hammer it home, to impress upon us the immensity of God. There is no exhausting, no measuring, no limiting God's riches, his wisdom, his knowledge. His justice, his ways, his plans are beyond us. St. Augustine commenting on these verses said, I see the depth, but I can't reach the bottom. Praxis, do you land in the same spot as Paul? Or can I humbly ask, is tonight just another way to fill up a free Thursday, reconnect with some friends? Is this doctrine unveiled to us, surely another Bible lesson to tuck away in our back pockets? Or are you overwhelmed at the glimpse of God? Do you marvel at his majesty, at his honor, at his glory? You know, most of the time I find myself unmoved and indifferent to God. It's precisely when God is small in my eyes, when I think his knowledge shallow, his way is pedestrian, Listen, that is not the God of Scripture. We dive into the deep doctrines of God because it shows us the boundless depth of God. We lift our gaze to the soaring heights of His wisdom because it overwhelms us with the transcendence of God. Which is why Paul primarily alludes to the book of Job in verses 34 and 35 of Romans. You remember the gist of the book of Job? God is effectively put on trial for the suffering righteous Job endures. But the moral of the story is more than providing an exhaustive answer at the end for all of Job's pains and losses, God puts Job in his place. Job, if I pulled back the curtain and told you the billion reasons, the billion things I am doing, your teeny brain would explode. You know, I grant life and tend to the birthing goat hidden in the mountain crevice. I play and provide for sea creatures swimming at the bottom of the ocean that you don't even know exists. Job, I am God. And what you need to rest in, who you need to rivet yourself upon is me. And one of my favorite verses in Job captures well the awe I think Paul is trying to communicate. Job 26, 14 says, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his way, 
and how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? For all that is revealed and communicated to us about God, these are but the fringes, the faint whispers to the magnitude of who he is. And it doesn't mean that what is revealed to us is not true or sufficient. But no one, absolutely no one, can wrap their mind and arms around our God. It's only appropriate for us to close by joining in with Paul. What can we possibly say to the one who knows all things? What can we possibly give to the one who owns all things? God's magnificent plan of redemption should not produce pride, but praise. Praise. See, worship doesn't have to be forced or sophisticated. It just needs to recognize and be blown away, to be lost in wonder. Let God and the glory of his magnificent plan captivate your attention and arrest your affections. Worship is the reflex of those who realize they've been saved, those who have received the mercy of God. And then it will come forth from you, verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the story of the Bible. This is a synopsis of our lives as well in miniature. It is all from him that he is the source. It is all through him he is the means. It is all to him he is the end. That he receives the glory for his glorious plan of salvation. Let's pray. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? God, the questions are rhetorical because we cover our mouths in awe, in amazement that you would not only reveal yourself, but you would draw near, that you would send your son to reconcile the world to yourself, that you and Gentile alike would be chosen, redeemed, to be in right relationship with you. It is not owing to our gifting, to our abilities, but sheer grace, mercy, mercy. And Father, we pray that this would cause our hearts to well up with thankfulness, that it would cause us to mend the knee in humility, Lord, recognizing that indeed we must decrease and Christ must increase that our lives are from you, through you, and for you. Lord, we know that there are inconsistencies uh, in our hearts, in our lives. Uh, Lord, we pray for help, that even as we sing, even as we go off into small groups, we be edified and encouraged to render all glory to you, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.